Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by David Meerman Scott. Most of you will know who he is. He's an acclaimed business strategist, entrepreneur. He's written uh, several books, uh, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR, which is how I was first introduced to him. And he also has a new book coming out at the beginning of 2020 about phenocracy. Welcome, David. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, David, if you could tell us a little bit, I mean, I, I think one of the great things about your book, which I've had a chance to dive into, and I really love it, um, is even the name, Phenocracy. And I think, uh, you might not pronounce it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That works. That's the right uh, words. Yes. But I would love for you to tell me a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit about why you chose that as a title and what really that is indicative of to you. Oh, cool. Great, great opening question. I appreciate that. So um, what, we, um, what we looked at with this idea of fanocracy is how and why people become fans of something and then how organizations can tap that fandom to both um, turn f existing fans of something into customers as well as customers into fans of a company or product or idea. Um, and I really thought that it needed a new word. Um, you know, people talk about the concept of raging fans, and that's the title of an old, old book that came out a couple of decades ago. Um, and I really wanted to come up with a new name. And oh my God, it took me, so, us, uh, I have a co-author, my daughter, Reiko, on the book. Uh, Rebecca, it took me so long to come up with this title. It was crazy. We had literally hundreds of ideas for what a title could be. I wanted one word, and I wanted a URL I could own, and the word fanocracy is the theocracy part is like democracy or meritocracy. It's rule by. So a democracy is ruled by the people. A meritocracy is ruled by um, the people with the most ability. A fanocracy is uh, ruled by the fans. Um, so we, that's how we came up with the name. And what was really important around this idea of fanocracy was I totally wanted to to um, lay claim to the word, but not lay ownership to the word. What I mean by that is I'm the first person to use it in this way, this word. Uh, I own the URL, and I'm hoping that many people will begin to use the word fanocracy. So, oh, I created a fanocracy. Um, because I did this one other time about 10 years ago. I started using the word newsjacking. Um, and I've shared a number of things around newsjacking with the pragmatic community over the years, uh, including webinar and some byline articles. And newsjacking, I did the same thing. I own the URL, I did a book around it, but I made it available to the world. I did not try to trademark it, which is the same thing I'm doing with fanocracy. And newsjacking became so popular, written about and talked about by so many people that it's now actually in the Oxford Dictionary with my name attached to it. In the Oxford Dictionary, how cool is that? And I wanted to see if I could maybe do the same thing with this concept of fanocracy. That's awesome. And I think that language really matters when you're introducing a new idea or at least a, a different take on an idea. I always think about 
when Agile kind of really was building up in, in the development world, one of the things they specifically and intentionally did was use different language to describe very similar things because it helps one of your mental model break through it. Correct. There's no question about it. And it's precisely why we tried to, we wanted to do it this way is come up with something that gets people to maybe pause a little bit and then perhaps it's memorable. Um, um, and then, uh, and then if someone types that into the Google machine, they get me, which is really cool. And I think the other reason that I love the word choice here is that when you think of raving fans or something, it sounds like something I'm building or something I'm doing to fans, right? What I like about this is I'm building them up for them to take control. And I think it's so clearly in that, in the word choice, the mindset of it's not about forcing someone or tricking someone into being fans. It's about the building fans and then empowering them to help you grow. That's exactly right. And there's another angle on it, which is it's entirely possible, and we have many examples of this, to tap an existing fandom. So something that's already going that you can tap into. I'll give you an example of that. Um, there's a company called Haggerty Insurance. They do classic car insurance. And when I was speaking with Mikhail Haggerty about what he did, he said, David, everybody hates my business. Nobody likes car insurance. They hate spending money on car insurance and they hate even more to use the product because it means they crash their car. I have a horrible product. However, people love their classic cars. They're fans of their classic cars. I didn't have to invent classic car fandom. I didn't have to invent that. But I realized that if I can tap into that existing fandom, what I would call fanocracy, um, then I can uh, develop fans of my business too. And it's exactly what he did. So he goes to classic car events and um, he's, he, they, the company goes to over a hundred classic car events a year. They set up a booth, they give edu do educational seminars, provide people with all kinds of information. They have a YouTube channel with, with nearly a million subscribers. They have a magazine that goes out to hundreds of thousands of subscribers. They have a Haggerty Drivers Club with 650,000 members. This is in a business that everybody hates. <laughs> so, um, so it's really cool to be able to tap that fandom. And, and the way this came about is my daughter Reiko and I were in a car five years ago and we were talking about the things we're fans of. And I, I said to her, you know, you know, I'm a grateful dead geek, Reiko. And I've been to 75 concerts. What's that all about? That's crazy. And she goes, I know I'm a massive Harry Potter fan. And I knew this, but she said, I've read every book multiple times. I've seen every movie multiple times. I've been to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park in Orlando multiple times. I even went to London to go to the Harry Potter um, studio where they make the films. And, and even more than that, I wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix, and I've put it on a fan fiction site, and it's been downloaded thousands of times. I am deep into Harry Potter, she says. So these fandoms we all have, everybody, um, already exist. And we, as product managers and marketing managers um, and product marketers, we have the opportunity to tap in to fandoms that already exist, as well as driving fans of our business. 
So before we go any further, I have to ask, because I just think it's also really neat. And one of the things that came really clear, even in the forward of the book, was that this was a great partnership between you and your daughter, Reiko. So what was that like to, to write the book, to talk about it? You know, fans, big fans of two very different things. How was that collaboration? Oh, it was amazing um, for so many reasons. So that story about five years ago, we were actually driving in a car and we were talking about um, our love of, in my case, The Grateful Dead, in her case, Harry Potter. And I was, I said to her, you know, I'm thinking uh, this idea of fandom is so interesting to me. I'm thinking about writing a book about it. And I kept asking her questions. <laughs> I'm like, Reka, what do you think about this? And what would a millennial do in this situation? And then finally, it was like six months later, I said, don't be an idiot. What am I, I, what am I thinking? I said, would you like to co-author this book with me? She's a fabulous writer. She's actually a better writer than I am in many ways. And she was like, yeah, this sounds great. So this was four and a half years ago. And we started embarking on this, this journey together. And it's so fabulous because for a lot of reasons. Of course, father-daughter thing is great. Um, we, clear, we clearly share different fandoms. You know, Harry Potter and Grateful Dead are very different. <laughs> I'm, I'm a 50-ish I'm a, um, a white guy. <laughs> she's a, a, a millennial, she's 26 years old now, a millennial mixed race woman. And um, I, I did very liberal arts and never went beyond an undergraduate degree. Um, she did neuroscience at Columbia University, and now she's a fourth-year medical school student, and she's going to go into emergency medicine. So she actually brings a neuroscience background to the idea of fandom, and we actually explored by speaking with a number of different neuroscientists why and how people become fans, what's actually going on in the brain. So besides being a wonderful way for me to get much closer to my daughter in writing the book together, you know, cause you have to trust one another to write a book together like this. Um, and besides having fun and working hard with it, um, it makes the book way better. And she brought in things that I never even dreamed of had I written it by myself, such as digging deep into the neuroscience of fandom. That's great. And I, I love the fact that you guys are so, um, the, such different perspectives for all those ways that you mentioned, I think does bring such a depth and such a, a different perspective to the book. And, a, and a, I think depth is the right word. There's a, there's a, uh, sometimes uh, in other people's marketing books that we read, we get a really good idea, but it's like one idea. And it's sort of like 200 pages on that one sentence and it's neat and we like it and, and all that. But, but I found that this had that and then it had some meat and some great examples to grab onto, but also some really clear uh paths right so what are what are the major elements of developing fans you guys dug into that in a in a way that i think had a little bit more meat and so i would love to maybe hit on a few of those now sure yeah absolutely absolutely um and thank you very much for using that word depth because um it, it really i think does have depth and the reason it has depth is because it's more than just me who's writing it um i'll give you one more quick story and then i do want to dive in on a particular one of the the prescriptions and then maybe you have some other ones you might want to dive into but um uh, so um as as reiko and i were were working on this we were trying to figure out how do we actually write it um and our first draft of the book we wrote it um, as one entity, always using the word we 
And it was one smooth voice that incorporated both of our thoughts. And it, the book wasn't working. So, and we, we couldn't figure out why, what the heck is going on here? And then we realized that we were getting rid of all the good bits of her writing and all of the, well, she's got more good bits than I do, all of the stuff in, in my writing that, that is reasonably good as well by, by smoothing out our voice into one. So we rewrote the entire book into a second draft where she wrote some of the chapters and I wrote some of the chapters and then we edited each other so that our individual voices come through loud and clear. And it made, I think, for a way better book. And, and thank you for using that word depth because it allowed us to go into these different ideas in a, in a more deep, deep and more um, um, personal way between the two of us. And one of those that I found most so fascinating um, that comes from neuroscience is the idea of proximity. So what we learned as we were writing this book um, and digging deep into fandom, what we learned is that at the core, you know, if I were to break the entire book down into a, into a sort of a sentence, at the core, people become fans and remain fans of something be because of the human connection with other like-minded people. So I mentioned my Grateful Dead fandom. Yeah, I love the music. Yeah, I love to go to the shows, but it's being with people who are just like me who also love the Grateful Dead. And I have a group of friends that I've gone to literally dozens of shows with over the years. And we many times don't even see each other outside of Grateful Deadland. So it's that true human connection. And when we were talking to neuroscientists, we learned that that human connection is hardwired into our brains. We can't help the fact that we humans have an emotional connection to people who are like us. And that's a really important thing to think about when it comes to developing fans, because if you can put yourself in your business, into proximity of other people who are either existing or potential customers, that's incredibly powerful. And it turns out a neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall identified the four levels of proximity, the first one being public space, which is further than 20 feet away. In public space, our brains don't really track the people that are that far away. We maybe unconsciously know that they're there, but we don't really track them. Inside of about 20 feet becomes social space. And our brains, we can't help it. Our our ancient brains kick in and we track anyone who comes within about 20 feet of us because we want to know our ancient brain wants to know, is this a friend, a foe, or a possible mate? And then even further, within about four feet is called personal space. That's cocktail party distance. So what that means is that if you trust someone and they're your friend or family member or someone you've met at a conference that you, that you, um, that you are friendly with, that's a very positive human connection. However, in a crowded elevator where you don't know people, it's, a, it's an unconscious reaction that you feel nervous because you don't know that person and your ancient brain is kicking in and saying, do I need to fight this person or run away from this person? What that means for us to develop fans is, can you put yourself and your employees into close physical proximity with customers, 
partners? Um, uh, can you put on a conference? Uh, can you do a tour of, um, of your customers and meet with them personally? And so we can under use this understanding of neuroscience to as much as we can get into close physical proximity for people. And if I can take this even a little bit further with the neuroscience, some people would say, well, you know, I, my business doesn't lend itself to getting physically close to people like you're describing, David. So there's another concept called mirror neurons that we learned about. Mirror neurons are the part of our brain that fires in the same way when we see someone doing it as if we were doing it ourselves. So I have here, as we're talking, a lemon and it's sliced. And I'm now going to take a little taste of this lemon. And oh my gosh, it's so strong, it's tart. It makes my, makes my mouth water, it makes my mouth pucker up a little bit. I even unconsciously close my eyes because it's so strong. That lemon is really powerful. My brain is firing with that lemon. And I would guess, Rebecca, and maybe everybody else who's listening in, that your brain might have been firing just a little <laughs> bit as well. And if you had actually seen me take that bite of lemon, it would have been firing even more. And that's because of mirror neurons. It's the part of our brains that fire when we see somebody do something as if we are seeing it ourselves. Now, here's where this kicks into building fans of our business. For everyone listening in, even if you can't get in close physical proximity um, of your customers, and that is we can use um, images, video, and photographs. So you can use video cropped as if you're in the personal space of someone, as if you're in, within four feet of them, and you are looking directly at the camera, um, and you can, using mirror neurons, make people believe um, uh, subconsciously that they're actually there talking to you and you can use video in that way. So create a YouTube channel or use Facebook Live or Instagram video um, and use, but you have to crop it such that you're close to the camera and that you're looking directly at the camera. And that's also explains why the humble selfie is such a powerful tool because a selfie by definition is taken within four feet of the, of the camera face and you're facing the camera and looking at it. And if there's other people in the shot, two or three or four or five other people, they're all looking at the camera. That's an incredibly powerful thing. And people often dismiss the selfie um, as frivolous, but in fact, it's a very, very powerful thing for developing fans. And it actually comes from neuroscience that describes and uh, why that's, that's important. So we did a whole chapter on this idea of proximity. It's absolutely fascinating to me. And the organizations that use these ideas grow fans more than those who don't. So I have to tell you, you did such a good job of describing eating the lemon that I think my face puckered and my eyes shut while you described it. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. And that's why that that explains why we feel as if we know movie stars and television stars. We have never met those people. They are they are pixels on a screen yet we feel we personally know them and that's from mirror neurons and so we as business people can use that concept to develop much stronger relationships with 
um, the people that we are already doing business with or potentially will do business with by using things like video and photographs. Do you have examples of companies that you think do that part, the proximity, very well? Yeah, one of the ones I think does extremely well with it, uh, and there's many, but um, that, I, um, that I talk about a lot is HubSpot. So HubSpot is a, uh, a marketing and sales and customer support software platform. Uh, I happen to be on the advisory board and have been since the very beginning back in 2007. Um, and HubSpot um, has a number of things that they do. So for physical proximity, they have the HubSpot inbound conference every year in Boston. They get 25,000 people at the inbound conference. And so those people are in close proximity with, with other people. And it's an incredibly powerful experience. But they also have something called HubSpot Academy. And it's a free academy that anybody can take the courses. And they actually have a, um, a bunch of professors. I think there's 20 people who work within HubSpot Academy for HubSpot. And they create online learning, um, and much of that is delivered through video. And they purposely shoot the videos in a friendly, informal way, looking directly at the camera. And that's really powerful um, in the virtual sense using mirror neurons. So they're using both of these concepts of proximity. And what it's ultimately doing is it's ultimately developing a powerful, um, emotional connection between people who work at HubSpot and the existing and potential customers of HubSpot, as well as at the conference, customers and potential customers of HubSpot and other customers and potential customers. And all of those bonds do a fabulous job at, um, at building a fan base because people remember that emotional connection and they want to repeat that emotional connection. Um, and they remember, oh, HubSpot was the person and the, or sorry, HubSpot was the organization that brought me together in that way. That is an excellent example. Um, one of the other ones that you brought up, which is just something I happen to be very passionate about uh, and very focused on trying to be in all aspects is transparency. Yes talk a little bit about transparency and why it's so important in the building of a phenocracy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in our world today, people are doubling down on, um, on just pushing out so many um, online and social media posts and, and, you know, yet another email and yet another um, uh, LinkedIn connection. And so often it just doesn't seem like it's grounded in reality. It doesn't seem in many cases like um, the organization truly wants to connect and, and never mind our political environment, which is fabulously polarized. Um, and in our political environment, you know, what is truth? We don't even know anymore what truth is in the political environment. So um, we did the research around the idea of being very transparent and, and telling the truth, especially when it hurts, is the, is the chapter title. Um, because um, when you come across as honest, even in a situation where you screwed up, if you 
if you come clean and be honest, it can be really powerful. Um, there's a couple of examples we use, which both are sort of fun uh, examples. One of them is, uh, and they're both restaurants. One is IHOP, International House of Pancakes. They actually used a lie as a marketing uh, tactic, and it totally backfired in our opinion. They um, put out on social media that they were gonna change their name from IHOP, IHOP, to IHOB, IHOB. And they put that out and people went nuts. The, I mean, the fans of IHOP said, what are you doing changing the name of the company? They actually took that ruse so far as to p tweet out pictures of a crane changing a sign on an IHOP restaurant to IHOB. And people said, you know, no, don't do this. You're famous for pancakes. What do you think you're doing? And, um, and they actually tricked the main, mainstream media. A whole bunch of newspapers and magazines and television stations reported on IHOP changing their names to, name to IHOB. It had nothing to do with April Fools. Um, it was nowhere near April 1st. And then, um, after a couple of days of this ridiculousness, they said, oh, just kidding. We did that because we wanted, to know, wanted you to know that we serve more than just breakfast. And it's like, what are you doing? This is crazy. At, at around the same time, roughly the same month, actually, last year, um, another restaurant, KFC in, in the UK, ran out of chicken. Can you believe it? A chicken restaurant that ran out of chicken. And they were absolutely truthful the whole time. They went out um, with advertisements in newspapers and on social media. They created a brand new website just to educate the public. And they said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but they said, can you believe it? We're a chicken company that ran out of chicken. <laughs> and they didn't, um, it was actually uh, a problem with their logistics company. The company that does the chicken deliveries totally screwed up and they had no chicken for about a week. But KFC did not blame the logistics company. They owned it. And they said to their, to their fans, their customers, we are really sorry, we'll make it right, we'll let you know when the chicken is back in the restaurant and they had coupons that people would get free chicken when it came back and so on. They did a fabulous job. Um, so the idea of always telling the truth is a really, really important concept um, for number one, building fans, but then keeping the fans that you have because it's so easy to lose those fans if you don't tell the truth. And I think that that's a, a, a theme in your book throughout is building and keeping, right? Yeah. And, and empowering them and being honest with it because they're, they're truly fans. It's a truly phenocracy. Then it's not, uh, it's not a trick. It's not a one-time thing. It's a no, commitment. that's exactly right. There's, that's exactly right. So David, this has been a great conversation. Uh, we talked about all kinds of things. Uh, is there one or two things that if you could tell our listeners that you would like them to do differently tomorrow based on the conversation today, what would that be? Ah, good question. So um, I actually have two. And, um, and I'll give a really, really quick example of each. Um, uh, just to give you flavor of a couple more chapters. One idea is um, to give more than you have to. Uh, 
Mm. So the, the Grateful Dead famously allowed their fans to record their concerts. They gave more than they had to. Every other band said no recording. The Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? So what I'd like people to take away from this concept is rethink the way you always insist, many of you listening in, on putting an email address around your white papers, an email address requirement around your white papers. I mean, so many B2B marketers will put out a beautifully um, produced white paper, but set up an adversarial relationship when you offer it as a download by insisting that you have to have an email address before you allow the download. That is not a way to build fans. I would suggest instead, make that white paper completely and totally free, just like the Grateful Dead, give more than you have to. Then maybe inside the white paper, you can have a secondary offer, perhaps an invitation to a webinar or a, uh, an invitation to subscribe to an email newsletter or subscribe to a podcast or something else, but that initial piece of content totally and utterly free. The second idea is that once you create your product or service, let the fans take over. Let your community take over. Don't try to control the message. Uh, and I'll give you two real quick examples. One, an organization that does try to control, that's Adobe. Adobe, um, my daughter is a huge Photoshop fan, despite Adobe not wanting her to be a fan. Adobe says you cannot use the following phrase, I Photoshopped this. Um, you cannot say, um, uh, I am using, I am, I am Photoshopping. Um, Adobe says, no, you can't do that. So they're basically saying, no, you can't use language as a fan. And they say that to the people who have become fans of their product. Um, at the same time, Microsoft um, has a Microsoft worldwide um, partner community. 350, uh, sorry, I think it's 350,000 partners are part of the partner community. It's their biggest sales channel. It's about $95 billion in revenue, last the last set of numbers I saw. $95 billion in revenue from the partner channel. Now, what they have actually lost control and let the fans take over in this way. The partner um, community is run by the partners, not by Microsoft. And if you go into the partner community, of which I'm a member because I've spoken at the Microsoft Worldwide Partner Conference a number of times, the partner community, um, and you ask a question, partners answer those questions, not Microsoft. Microsoft lurks but the partners run the community. And by letting the partners run the community, they feel ownership over it. They become fans of the partner community. Whereas if Microsoft tried to exert control in the way that Adobe does, those people would not become fans. So two real quick examples of a few things that people can take away right away and put to use right away. Great. Thank you very much, David, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Rebecca. And can you tell our listeners how they might be able to connect with you and where they might be able to find their own copy of Thinocracy, how to turn fans into customers and customers into fans? 
Absolutely. So we've got a cool website at um, fanocracy.com. Um, I will not ask you for your email address. However, <laughs> if you want to subscribe to our blog updates, you, you can. Um, so that's fanocracy.com. On social media, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. -T. So uh, Twitter's a great place. Um, and my name, my full name, David Meerman Scott, M-E-E-R-M-A-N is my last name, David Meerman Scott. I'm the only David Meerman Scott on the planet. So if you Google me, you will find me. Uh, a fellow only. I'm an only Rebecca. Are you an only? Oh, isn't it's it fantastic. cool? Oh, it's fantastic. And you know, the reason I did that is because there are a gazillion David Scotts out there. Mm -hmm. And um, 20 years ago when, and it was pre-Google, but the Yahoo search engine, I typed in David Scott and I was like, oh, there's a lot of David Scott's <laughs> <out> <laughs> I gotta That's fix smart. this. I gotta fix this problem. And, and 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 getting going full circle to your very first question. That's exactly why we use the word fanocracy. You type in fanocracy into the Google machine, and you get us, and you don't get anything else. All right, that does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening, and don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.